0: Amen. Thank you, Amy. Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to uh, Matthew this morning. And as we do so, let me lead us in a word of prayer. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. Uh, Minister to our hearts as we study. Give me grace to teach accurately and clearly. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are working our way through uh, Matthew. And you note on the overhead that we have an outline of, of the book. And we are in that section in chapter 26 and 27, The Passion of the King. Matthew 27, verses 27 through 44, The Crucifixion of Christ. The theme of Matthew is Christ the King. Uh, The King of the Jews is a Messianic title that was really the issue from the time of Christ's birth. I mean, no sooner was he born than Herod saw this newborn King of the Jews as a threat. And therefore, sought to have him killed. Well, fast forward now to the passion of the king, as we see in chapter 26 and 27. And once again, Jesus being the king of the Jews is the key issue. Now, Jesus experienced two sets of trials uh, that being religious trials before the religious leaders of Israel, and then also secular trials before the Roman leaders. Uh, namely, a Pilate and Herod, with Pilate being the principal one. Now, Pilate really wanted to let Jesus go, but the Jewish religious leaders were relentless in demanding that Jesus be crucified. They really put the pressure on Pilate. Uh, Since Jesus claimed to be a king, uh, they said, if you let Jesus go, then you're no friend of Caesar. And to be no friend of Caesar is, (laughs) you know, a death sentence in this context. So uh, they were really applying the pressure. Well, finally, Pilate capitulated to this pressure and delivered Jesus to be crucified, knowing full well that Jesus was an innocent man. And this is where we pick the narrative up in Matthew 27 and verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium, the governor's quarters, And gathered the whole garrison around him. Now, the soldiers in view were evidently the personal guards of Pilate. He'd come down from Caesarea Maritime to Jerusalem. He'd bring his old regiment of soldiers with him. That's probably who's in view here. And the Praetorium is thought to have been a palace like courtyard or, you know, courthouse yard. Some think it may have been a part of the old Herodian palace. But most think this took place at the castle of Antonia, which was Pilate's official headquarters. Here we see the whole garrison of soldiers gathered around to abuse Jesus. The word garrison, uh, Greek is spyria, uh, is also translated as cohort or a battalion. A was one tenth of a legion, and meaning a full garrison numbered 600 soldiers. But many think that perhaps the whole garrison represents all the who were on site here, maybe, maybe not the full 600. So there's all kinds of guesses, somewhere between 120 to maybe the full uh, 600 uh, that took part in this abuse. Verse 28, And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. I mean, since the official charge for which he is being crucified is that he claimed to be king of the Jews, they're really going to have some fun with this. They're going to make sport of him because he claimed to be a king. And so they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Matthew says it was a, a scarlet or reddish robe, while Mark and John say it was purple. Ed Glasscock says scarlet can mean red or purple. Uh, and uh, we see uh, Mark fifteen seventeen and uh, John nineteen two uh, bring it out as purple. So it can describe a a color ranging from rose to deep purple. So there was a a range of colors here. You could call it, it's probably a reddish purple. Uh, Note uh, on the overhead here. William MacDonald says, Since scarlet is associated with sin, Isaiah, I like to think that the robe pictures my sins being placed on Jesus so that God's robe of righteousness might be placed on me. Isn't that that a neat uh, picture? It really is. Verse 29. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Now, the thorns in this region, uh, commentators consistently bring out, the thorns in this region may well have been two to three inches long. And with these thorns, they made a mock crown placed it on his head. John Philip says, Little did the soldiers know how suitable was the crown of thorns. Thorns are the symbol of the curse, Genesis 3. And Jesus bore the curse for us so that the curse might be removed, including the curse on the world of nature. So they placed a, uh, th- also placed a, a stick-like reed in his right hand is a mock scepter. And then, in ridicule, they bowed the knee before him, saying, "Hail, King of the Jews." This is what John MacArthur has called the comedy of Calvary." He says, "When you think of Calvary, you think of its horrors, its cruelties, its agonies. You do not think of it as a comedy, nor should you. I don't think of it as a comedy. But the people who participated in it, when it happened, turned it into a comedy. Calvary was a joke. Verse 30, Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. Now spitting on someone showed utter contempt, utter disregard. So they had a mock scarlet robe, a mock crown of thorns, a mock reed scepter, and a mock kiss of homage in the form of spitting. He really looked like a king, didn't he? This was total mockery. Sadly, they had no idea that this one they showed such cruel contempt for truly one day will be revealed to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, we read, which none of the rulers of this age knew. They didn't know. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They, they didn't believe it. That's why they mocked it. They didn't know. They took the reed and struck him on the head. It would be like taking a broom handle, smacking him on the top of the crown of thorns two or three inch thorns which would go deep into his skull. Unbelievably inhumane and cruel, which was just the idea. And the amazing thing to me is that Jesus just took it and submitted himself to this unjust treatment in subjection to the will of the Father. I don't know about you, but when you're really being mistreated, it's not easy to take it. When injustice is being dished out in a very inhumane way, I don't know, this just you, you wanna you wanna strike back. Jesus didn't. We read in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23 who when he was when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Verse 31, And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off, put on his own clothes, and led him away to be crucified. Now, people have wondered how Matthew knew what went on here, since he certainly was not there in the presence of these Roman soldiers. So how did he know? That's a good question, right? Where did he get the information? Well, the best guess is that one of the soldiers at some point became converted and shared his story with the early Christians. Of course, God can reveal anything by way of inspiration, uh, no question. But uh, the thinking is probably they got this information from an insider. Perhaps it was even the centurion guard who, as he watched Jesus die, ended up confessing, truly, this was the Son of God. Perhaps, but we just don't know. Well, as they led Jesus away to be crucified, he gave this last parting public message to the Jews. And we read it in the cross-reference here in Luke chapter 23. And a great multitude of people followed him, and women also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore. Better to not have any children than have them go through what we're experiencing. And the breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? Jesus, in effect, was saying, the terrible times were ahead for them as a people. I mean, if the Romans had done this to a totally innocent person, which they did, what might they be expected to do to the guilty nation of Israel? Now he was undoubtedly, and most commentators agree here, probably referring to AD 70 when the Romans would destroy the Jewish temple and Jerusalem, killing, according to Josephus, 1.1 million Jews in the process. The nation of Israel to this day has never fully recovered. You see, they still have no temple, no sacrifices, no priesthood, no peace. The fallout of rejecting Jesus as their Messiah has been long and difficult. And the very worst is yet to be. Until finally, in the tribulation period, they will finally come to repentance, finally come to recognize Jesus as their true Messiah. And then they will see Him again. Then he will come to their rescue. But not until they say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Verse 32. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. Now John 19.17 indicates that Jesus bore his cross for part of the way, as the victim was expected to carry the crossbeam. However, evidently, the beatings, and he had had multiple beatings with Herod's men, with Pilate and the mockery they made, everything he had gone through, even the night before in the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, he had gone through a tremendous amount even before they got to the cross. And all of these beatings and abuse took a toll on him to where evidently he couldn't go any further physically. So the soldiers compelled a bystander named Simon from Cyrene to step in and bear his cross for him. Now, Cyrene was located about 800 miles away from Jerusalem along the Mediterranean coast in what is today known as Libya. So uh, note the map here. <clears throat> uh, we're talking Jerusalem's over here. Don't, don't pay attention to this line. This is something else. But uh, Jerusalem is here, and he's from here. So he's making a trek all the way to Jerusalem. And evidently, he was in uh, Jerusalem for the Passover festivities. And apparently, there was a large number of Cyrenian Jews who lived in Jerusalem because they they were represented in a large synagogue there, as we find in Acts chapter 6 and verse 9. And also, we note that on the day of Pentecost, their dialect, their specific dialect, is listed in relation to the tongues phenomenon as seen in Acts 2.10. Now, Mark, in his gospel, referred to Simon as though the people would recognize him as the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, uh, this suggests that they were well-known Christians in the early Christian community. And again, the commentators are very consistent in bringing this out. Warren Wearsby says, it seems likely that this humiliating experience resulted in, in Simon's conversion, as well as that of the conversion of his family. Very possibly. You know, we don't want to read too much there, but Mark seems to indicate they they would know uh, who Simon was and and his family there. Verse 33. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, the place of a skull. Now, the word Golgotha is an Aramaic word, which means skull, and has as its Latin counterpart the word calvaria from which we get our English word, Calvary. Now, this place was evidently located on a hillside along a busy road just outside the city. Now, we don't know for sure why this place was called Galgatha—that That is the place of the skull. Uh, some think it was because of the shape of the hill. Others think it was because this place was identified with unclaimed corpses that were left to decay on crosses. And often the Romans would lead them to just rot and for the birds of prey to to eat the flesh and and to where nothing was left but, you know, the skeleton, uh, place of the skull. Perhaps that's what's in view. Uh, Two places have been suggested as a possible location of Golgotha. Uh, One is called Gordon's Calvary uh, because the hillside resembles the form of a skull and you can see here, can you not see what we're talking about? Kind of looks a little bit like that, right? So, you yeah, know, that's, that's, that's one idea. But by far and away, most scholars believe the most likely location is near what is now called the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, which is located in the Old City's northwest quarter. And uh, note uh, here a couple of pictures. You know, this is uh, the site uh, from, you know, it's one picture. <clears throat> and uh, here's another one. You know, here, here's, here's what people do. Uh, very, very gaudy. Uh, leave it to mankind to totally make gaudy this holy site, which they have definitely done in a maximum way, the Roman Catholic Church there. It's a good thing, you know, uh, that we don't actually have the original manuscripts of the Bible, in, in my view. Uh, because if we did, uh, can you imagine what people would do? I think they would make over them in an idolatrous manner instead of properly worshiping the God they reveal. There's some You can see the, the wisdom of God. It's a good thing we don't know where, uh, you know, Moses is buried. Uh, there, there's, there's, there's good reasons we don't know a lot of these. things. People, they tend to turn into idolatry, you know, that which should really be sacred. Uh, verse 34, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink, and when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Now, Jesus at this point would have been desperately thirsty, as is recognized in the Gospels. And so for whatever reason, they offered him this mixture of sour wine and gall. The word gall means bitter. Uh, Mark says it was myrrh. Uh, Many think this was, in essence, a further form of mockery, which I tend to think as well. Uh, Moody Commentary says, Offering the wine appeared on the surface as an act of kindness. But he was mercilessly taunted since it was undrinkable. I think this ties in with what we find back in Psalm 69, uh, verse 21. They also gave me gall for my food. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. In the context of Psalm 69, David was metaphorically saying that those who hated him served him up bitterness to drink. But then this was prophetically fulfilled in Christ's experience. And this too was a fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, Note the text here in John chapter 19, verses 28 and 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. All of this is fulfillment of prophecy. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on his, and put it to his mouth. Again, they're mocking him. I thirst. Okay, we'll give you something to drink. Try this. Verse 35. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, amazingly, almost no details are given concerning the nature of what was involved in the crucifixion itself. I mean, the gory details of the crucifixion itself are really left out. However, those living at this time really didn't need to have it described as it was all too painfully obvious. Matthew simply mentions, then they crucified him. And then puts the emphasis on the activity surrounding the cross. But crucifixions were gruesome. You see, Rome intentionally perfected an agonizing death that really maximized drawn-out pain and misery. That was the idea. Believe me, when they were offering up this, this uh, sour wine, I don't think it was intended to be relief. They made an example Out of anyone who would dare to mess with Rome. You mess with Rome, you get put on a cross. Rome is sovereign here. ESV study Bible. Crucifixion was widely believed to be the worst form of execution due to the excruciating pain and public shame. Hanging suspended by one's arms eventually caused great difficulty in breathing, which could be alleviated only by pushing up with one's feet to to take the weight off of the arms. But that motion itself would cause severe pain in the feet, arms, legs, back, causing the exhausted victim to slump down again, only to be nearly unable to breathe once more. Eventually, the victim would succumb to sussification. Crucifixion was so bad that a Roman citizen could not be crucified, with one exception. And that was by a direct order from Caesar himself. So it was reserved for the very worst of crimes, the very worst of criminals. Roman citizens so dreaded the idea of crucifixion, they refused to say the word cross in polite company. It was truly horrific. We do have a description of Jesus in Isaiah 52 leading into that chapter 53, Isaiah fifty two fourteen, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, you would hardly recognize him as a human being and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. You know, we sing the old song, Were You There? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Oh, sometimes... It causes me to tremble. Tremble. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Commonly, the Romans crucified people without any clothes on, no dignity whatsoever. You see, the goal was to humiliate them as much as possible and to inflict as much pain as possible for as long as possible. So the soldiers took Christ's garments and they cast lots for them. Although the line about fulfilling prophecy is not in the older manuscripts, as we find here in the, in the New King James, uh, here in Matthew 27, 35, it is unquestionably stated in John 19. So note the prophecy in Psalm twenty-two eighteen: They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And then in John 19, they said therefore among themselves, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. So many details surrounding the cross are grounded in the prophetic scriptures. A popular booklet is titled, 33 Prophecies Fulfilled in One Day. Which is amazing. There's nothing like this anywhere else in the history of the world. Christianity building on Judaism, the Old Testament scriptures, is uniquely a prophetic faith among all the religions of the world. You want proof of Christianity? Consider the prophetic scriptures fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 36. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there. I mean, this was the death watch. It was the soldier's job to make sure no one tried to rescue someone nailed to a cross. Now, once they were dead, it didn't matter. But until then, they kept watch. And you know, it was the soldier, and even how they came to Jesus, they saw he was dead. It was the soldier's job to make sure they were dead. After they were dead, they could leave. But this was a death watch. Make sure he dies on that cross. Make sure nobody tries to rescue him. Verse 37. And they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Over the top of the cross, Rome would put the charge, giving the reason why this person was being crucified. The placard over Christ's cross read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now this statement was totally accurate, but nobody got it. Because they didn't understand the truth that as the Messiah, he has two comings. The first time he came to die as God's sacrificial lamb for the sin of the world. The next time, however, he's coming as king of kings and Lord of lords, and I don't know about you, but I'm really looking forward. This statement that Jesus is the king of the Jews is recorded in all four gospels. This was the key issue. This is why, according to Rome, he's on the cross. And so we have it. In all four Gospels. Uh, this is Jesus the King of the Jews, Matthew twenty seven, thirty seven. Of course, for you Greek scholars, this you know that's good. Uh, the King of the Jews in Mark fifteen, uh, this is King of the Jews, Luke twenty three, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews, in John nineteen. The full statement was this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. All the accounts contain the phrase the King of the Jews which was the essence of the charge. It was written in all three languages, the main languages of the, of the whole area. Uh, name of Hebrew, Greek, and Latin is seen in John 19, verse 20. Now this statement, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. This statement was very insulting to the Jewish authorities, to the Jewish religious leaders. And so they had a request before Pilate And they said, we want you to change this from the king of the Jews to, he said, he said, I am the king of the Jews. But Pilate refused to change it, saying, what I have written, I have written. John 19, 20 through 22. And of course, Pilate at this point had enough of these religious leaders. You know, you've pushed me enough around here. Nope, I've written what I've written. Now, the irony is that it spoke the truth and did so in all the major languages in use at the time. Warren Wiersbe is right when he says, in one sense, this title proved to be the first gospel tract ever written. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? Published by Rome. Verse 38. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right hand, the other on the left. Now the word robbers is maybe not the best translation, because you see, Uh, Rome did not require the death penalty for robbery. Uh, But this word, robbery, uh, that is translated robbery here, uh, is a a broad word. It can also mean insurrectionists or revolutionaries, uh, which was a capital offense. It's the same word that's used in reference to Barabbas in John 1840, and we know elsewhere that he was a murderer. Uh, so robbery here uh, is probably not the best translation, but that, rather of an insurrection is somebody that would, uh, you know, defy Rome. In this case, Jesus putting himself forth as a as a rival king. Well, this fits the prophetic description of Isaiah fifty three twelve, where we read, "Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong." This is looking forward to the kingdom ultimately. And why? Because he poured out his soul into death and he was numbered with the transgressors. We got three transgressors on three crosses. He's numbered with them. That's who he is. He's a transgressor. That's why he's on the cross. He was numbered with the transgressors. But he himself was, we know, without sin. But he was numbered with them. He was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many. And made intercession for the transgressors. Prophecy, 700 years in advance, fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus. Verse 39 And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself, save yourself, come down. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Now, to blaspheme means to speak irreverently. As they blaspheme, they were wagging their heads in contempt, saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Again, they totally misunderstood. Jesus never said he would destroy the Jewish temple of Jerusalem and build it in three days. But rather, in John 2, 19, when he said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. He was speaking of his physical body, that they would destroy, not him, that they would destroy. And then he would raise it up on the third day. You know, Jesus often made much of this third day. And even his enemies knew it, you know, after, after the crucifixion. Here's, here's just proof that they knew it. And in Matthew 27, on the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember, we remember uh, that while he was still alive, how that deceiver said, after three days I will rise. They knew it. I wish his disciples had this good a memory. But they remembered. Therefore, command the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night, steal him away, and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, and so the last deception be worse than the first. You know what Jesus could have said to these mockers? You're early. Just wait three days. Weren't you listening? But not getting it, they reasoned, since he can't even save himself by coming down from the cross, it's clear that his claim to be able to rebuild the temple in three days is clearly false, making him a false teacher. I mean, you claim you're going to... This temple, it's taken us 70 years to build this temple, and we're not even done yet, uh, or whatever it was at that point, maybe 46 years, it took a total of 70, uh, and, and you say you're going to do this in three days? You can't even come down. That's an impossible task. Start by coming down from the cross. They further taunted him saying, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. I mean, anything's possible for God. By the way, if you are the son of God is exactly what Satan said in tempting Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 verse 3 and Matthew 4 verse 6. John MacArthur says, The wicked, mindless, heartless, and fickle crowd had had changed in a few days from acclaiming Jesus as the Messiah to condemning Him as a blasphemer. Many people today are like them. They may have been raised in the church, heard the truths of the gospel many times, and know that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. They may have been baptized, made a profession of faith, attended church regularly for a while. But because Jesus is not fulfill their worldly, selfish expectations. They lose interest in the things of God. They may be quite willing to have the church attack evils in society, but are quite unwilling to be confronted with their own sin and need for repentance and forgiveness. In effect, they mock and sneer at Jesus as they turn their backs on his truth, his righteousness, and his lordship. The world is full of passer, passersby who once praised Jesus, but now ridicule him. You know apostasy where you once professed, you once claimed to be there, and you walk away is a really serious matter. I really believe, you know, we are living in the last days and the defining mark of the last days, and I'm talking about the last days of the church age. The last days of the church age are marked by apostasy. Uh, you know, there's always been the, the gross sins, the grossest sins of society. There's nothing new under the sun. But you know what's new in the church age? Overwhelming levels of apostasy. Uh, false teachers will become worse and worse. Second Timothy chapter 3. These are day, Apostasy is a specific sin where people once professed and they walk away. This is what Hebrews is all about as far as the warning passages. For example, in Hebrews chapter 6, it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, uh, they saw the truth presented to them by the Holy Spirit. Uh, They experienced what I, I call the enlightenment of conviction. And they tasted the heavenly gift, became partakers of the Holy Spirit. They interacted with the Holy Spirit on a very deep level and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Uh, The miraculous was uh, going on in their context. If they fall away, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since what happens? Since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame, this level of rejection is so deep and so far, it's impossible to bring them back again. And those who uh, are guilty of this level of rejection are in essence doing the same thing as what happened when they crucified Christ. The rejection, uh, the denial of of Jesus Christ for who He is, it's the same type of sin. I think we have a corollary in Hebrews chapter 10. For if we sin willfully, willful, willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, which is uh, shorthand for the gospel. Uh, many times in the New Testament, especially from the hand of Paul, which might be an argument that Paul wrote Hebrews, which I'm not saying, by the way. But uh, if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain, a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment Do you suppose, will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? This is intentional. It is one who has known the enlightenment of conviction. This is sinning willfully. How much worse punishment do you suppose, will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? A common thing, provision made for you. An insult of the spirit of grace, horrible, horrible sin of apostasy. One who has known the truth and turned full back on—very. I don't know where that line is, but there is such a line as described in Hebrews six and Hebrews ten. And it—you can see the, the seriousness of the warnings, the passion of the warnings. Today, if you will hear His voice, don't harden your hearts. Don't get into that position. Verse 41. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and the elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross. Constantly, you know, you know, taunting him, coming down from the cross. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe, we'll be believers. All three of these categories, namely the chief priests, scribes, and elders, really represent the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, in Israel. They were these main religious leaders, the Supreme Court, mocking him. Mocking is in the sense of making fun of or ridiculing him. Note, they did not deny that he had delivered others. This is evidently an oblique reference to Christ's healing and delivery ministry. But while acknowledging that reality, they disparagingly say, but himself he cannot save. And then as if reasoning amongst themselves, they were saying, if he is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross. We'll believe in him. You know, unbelief always kind of wants to set the terms. You do this, we'll believe. Uh, and for unbelief, there's never quite enough evidence. I mean, Christ gave so much evidence in his miraculous ministry. But for unbelief, there's never enough. Uh, do one more sign from heaven, we'll believe. Come down from the cross, we'll believe. Never enough evidence. Jesus could have said, I'll do one better than come down from the cross. I'll rise myself up from the dead on the third day, which is in effect what he had previously said. And they knew it. Verse 43 He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. I mean, it's amazing how much they knew about the claims of Christ. It's not like they were totally ignorant. They were in the sense that they didn't really get it, but they knew his claims. They knew that in his servant role that he trusted in the Father. They knew his claim. They knew of his claim to have a special relationship with God, the Father, as the Son of God. That is, in effect, claiming to have the very same nature as God. And so they reasoned. If indeed he is in this kind of relationship, with God, let him now deliver it. Their thinking is that the cross verified that indeed God was not with him and indeed that he was cursed of God. After all, that is what death on a cross signified as seen in Deuteronomy 21 verses 22 and 23. Little did these religious leaders realize that in effect they were mouthing the fulfillment of Messianic prophecy as seen in Psalm 22, 8. We read there, He trusted in the Lord. Let Him rescue Him. Let Him deliver Him since He delights in Him. They should have maybe sat down and read Psalm 22. They were fulfilling prophecy. Indeed, Jesus did entrust Himself to the Father. But what they failed to realize is that commitment was not in order to avoid the cross, to be saved from the cross but rather to fulfill the will of the Father in fulfillment of the prophetic scriptures in which God himself provides the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Ironically, they mocked Jesus for who he truly was and is. Notice what they said. They mocked Jesus as a Savior. They mocked Jesus as the Son of God. They mocked Jesus as the King of Israel. And they mocked Jesus' trust in God. Well, one day all will bow before him and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And we should note this, that Jesus trusted the Father to raise him from the dead. I mean, that was his specific prayer request, which was answered. Uh, We know this as we study Psalm 22. Verse 21, save me from the lion's mouth. You know, from the, the power, uh, the power is a bee. You're in that position of power. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. This is, this is representing a, a prayer from the cross. And then it says, you have answered me. W- w- how did he uh, receive an answer? Well, in the resurrection, in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries, And tears to him who was able to save him from death. And was heard. How was he heard? Did he avoid death? No. He was heard in the resurrection. Because of his godly fear. You know sometimes God delivers on this side of the grave. And sometimes he answers in the resurrection. And in the end it's all good. In our humanness we tend to think about answered prayer only in regard to this life. But sometimes God answers in a grander way on the other side. Sometimes we pray for healing, but it doesn't come in this life, but rather will be realized in the resurrection. It will be answered, only a little differently than we tend to think in our humanness. Verse 44, even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. The same thing. All these horrible things they're saying, they're saying the same thing. Now we often talk about the one thief who was repentant. But this brings out that initially they both were casting insult at Christ. They both were blaspheming and mocking Christ like all the others mentioned in the surrounding context. But you know, it's never too late until it's too late. You never know when seemingly the the hardest of sinners may come to repentance. You know that old saying, "There there is record of only one deathbed conversion in all the scriptures. But there is record of one, so that no one may despair, but yet only one, so that none should presume. It's never too late until it's too late. We keep sharing the truth of Christ until people stop breathing. Well, with all this mocking activity swirling around the cross, the one thief was listening. Yeah, he was mocking too, but he was also listening about this one that was being called a savior, the son of God, the king of Israel. And really inadvertently, the gospel was being shared with him In a most unlikely manner. I mean, he would have heard Christ say things like, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And suddenly, he had a radical change of mind. You know what we call that, right? Repentance. Repentance means to have a change of mind. He went from being a mocker to being a believer, and he threw in with Christ. Here's the record of it, parallel in Luke 23. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You know it takes some kind of faith to believe that this person on the cross dying like this and and not even hardly resembling a human being is, is headed for a kingdom and is going to be in charge of the kingdom. I mean, that takes some kind of faith. He had it. Remember when you come into your kingdom and Jesus said to him, sorry, dude, you've been very nasty to me. (laughs) No, 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 no. He didn't say that. Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. I'll tell you what, that's good news. That's good news. It's amazing. He didn't get so excited. He would come off the cross. (laughs) Couldn't do it. No, Jesus did not say he would be with him in heaven that day. But rather with him in paradise. You see, in the Old Testament, uh, prior to the resurrection of Christ, the Old Testament saints, when they died, went to a paradise section of Hades. Which is called Abraham's bosom in Luke 16. In Luke 16, Jesus told the true story of a beggar named Lazarus, a rich man, and Abraham. They all died. Now, this was not a parable because parables never use historical names of historical people. Never anywhere do we see that in a parable. So I don't believe this was a parable. I believe this was a historical event. A historical reality. The two men, Lazarus and the rich man, died. And they went to Hades. Which was uh, the realm of departed spirits. Hades is a New Testament Greek word that corresponds to the Old Testament Hebrew word, Sheol. So Sheol in the Old Testament. Hades in the New Testament. Uh, Same thing. One's Hebrew, one's Greek. Prior to the resurrection of Christ, all the dead went to this realm of departed spirits called Sheol or Hades. Now, Hades had two compartments, as seen in Luke 16. One section was called paradise, the section of which Abraham was the attendant. Hence, it was called Abraham's bosom. Uh, He is uh, the father of 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 the faithful. Uh, where this is where the saints resided in, in the spirit realm, in close fellowship with Abraham. The other section was a torment section, which is where the lost went and still go to this day when they die, awaiting the final judgment. Between the paradise section and the torment section, there was a great gulf fixed, so they could not pass from one section to the other. But they could communicate. And in that context, as Jesus is telling the story, in Luke 16, verse 26, Abraham said to the rich man, And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fix so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. My point here is when Jesus died, his soul went to the paradise section of Sheol, Slash /hades. And we see this for example back in the Old Testament in Psalm 16:10 you will not leave my soul in Sheol his soul. You will not leave my soul in Sheol. This is a place where departed spirits go. The souls of the, of the saints this is where they went. You will not leave my soul in Sheol nor will you allow your holy one to see corruption in the tomb. And then in Acts 2:31 he foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ that his soul was not left in Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. So this was the paradise that Christ went to when he died and where the converted thief joined him on that very day. Now, after his resurrection, I believe Christ emptied out the paradise section of Hades and established a new meeting place for souls of departed saints in heaven. We know in the New Testament, it now says that for believers when we die... To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we know where the Lord is. He's in heaven. So, let me put this diagram up for you. <clears throat> uh, you know, the body uh, goes to the grave. This is uh, Hades prior to the resurrection of Christ. Uh, the body goes to the, to the grave. Uh, the soul goes to Hades. Uh, the, the paradise section. The compartment for the saved. Uh, there's a great goal fixed here, but then you have the compartment of the unsaved, the place of torment. Again, this is Hades, uh, prior to the resurrection of Christ. A uh, paradise section, a torment section. Uh, and I believe, as we would look at other scriptures, this was in the lower parts of the earth, the heart of the earth. As we find in Matthew 12 and so forth. Well, let me wrap this up. The great emphasis today in our study at the foot of the cross was that many different groups... And individuals were mocking, taunting, sneering, ridiculing, and degrading the claims of Jesus. What they all failed to realize is that this King of the Jews, who is the Son of God, was also destined to be the suffering servant. As prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures. I mean, we've got four major sections in Isaiah that we call the servant passages. The build-up to the climactic one of Isaiah 53. As such, he was to be despised and rejected by men. Isaiah 53:3. He was to be the stone which the builders, the leaders, rejected. Psalm 118:22. He was to be in the position of trouble where there is none to help. Psalm twenty two eleven. In all this, Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies about being the Messiah. Yes, he is the divine messianic king of Israel. But he's also the suffering servant upon whom the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all. Jesus was so abused and so despised and mistreated Because they mocked his claims. They didn't believe. But when you understand the whole counsel of God, it was precisely because of who he was as Messiah Lord that he received such treatment and allowed it. It was all in fulfillment of prophecy that aligned perfectly with what Jesus had to go through to be the Savior of the world. And why did he do it? Well, it was the greatest demonstration of love the world had ever or will ever see. We read in Romans, But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For the believer, Christ wore a robe of mocking so that we might wear a robe of righteousness. Christ Wore a crown of thorns so we might wear a crown of glory. Christ died a death of humiliation all alone so that we might be in fellowship with him forever. This, my friends, is all grace. The good news of God's grace, God's riches, at Christ's expense. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Let's stand and have our closing song. (laughs) I was hoping for an amen. Boy, yeah, what do God's people say to that? Amen. Amen. Lord, we thank you for the glorious Savior that you have provided. And Lord, as we study our text, we see what he had to go through uh, to uh, be the Savior of the world. Sin is a terrible thing. Death is a terrible thing. What Jesus went through was awesome beyond what we can comprehend. Lord, uh, all of heaven for all eternity will sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Lord, we want to say thank you. Thanks be to you for your indescribable gift. And Lord, if there's anyone listening that has not come to a true saving faith, I pray that even today they they would come to Jesus. Whoever in faith calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord, nobody can do it for us. We have to come to you. With the heart we believe, with the mouth we confess. Lord, have your way in every heart. And then, Lord, as your people, we live in, a, in the midst of a, of a dark world, days of apostasy. I pray that our light would shine brightly. The truth of the risen Lord would be on display in and through us. Thank you so much for the death of Christ, the full gospel, including the resurrection. And so, Lord, we want to say thank you. Thank you for what you have done for us. We owe everything to you for time and eternity. Thank you, thank you, Jesus. Lord, dismiss us with your blessing, and I thank you that you do. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.